Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Caroline, what are we talking about this week? We're on vacation, by the way. We're away from our home studio and um, we're at uh, Casa del Jamesport out here on Long Island. Yeah, we're on the North Fork of Long Island. Uh, you might hear some crickets in the background. We're kind of in the boonies, which is nice. It is nice and also sometimes very still and spooky. Ooh. So, Caroline, we're taking advantage of that uh, atmosphere. And what are we talking about this week? Well, Sean, this week I'm returning to one of our passion points on this podcast. A lot of the triple P, if you will. I love a triple P. And we're discussing more local legends to Connecticut and the East Coast. Like we've mentioned before, this area is full of history and many, many quirks. Yeah. But it tends to get overlooked when it comes to tales of the weird. While we were on our mini-moon last year to Vermont, I picked up the book New England UFOs by Taryn Plum, and that's what I'll be sourcing today for our topic. New England UFOs. Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'll be covering stories from all the New England states, which are Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, and including a few more in-depth tales, like the strange sightings in the mountains of Maine, a multi-person sighting and abduction one night in Massachusetts, and even some of the earliest UFO stories recorded in America. Can't wait. Let's get right into it. You know I love a little green man. <laughs> yes, and aliens. Oh, yes. Yeah, of course. For a little background, uh, because we don't expect all of our listeners to be Americans or experts in colonial history, the area of New England began to be settled around 1620 when the Pilgrims, Puritan separatists from England, those classic tall black hat with the buckle folks... We want freedom to persecute people in our own way. Exactly. They came over on the Mayflower and established the Plymouth Colony in what would become Massachusetts. This was the second successful colony in the Americas, the first being Jamestown in Virginia. 
because, as you know if you listened to our sixth episode, The Lost Colony of Roanoke, some of the previous attempts at settlement didn't work out so well. Uh, no, everybody died. Or did they? No, they probably all died. <laughs> From there, the Massachusetts Bay Colony arrived around a decade later, then more and more of the area surrounding was settled through the 1600s. And it's during this time that the first stories of unidentified flying objects in American history were recorded. The very first comes from as far back as 1639 in Massachusetts. The sighting was recorded by no less a figure than John Winthrop, governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Oh, this is legit as hell. <laughs> as legit as anyone who was around then, I guess. This story was relayed to him by a James Everell, who Winthrop describes as a sober and discreet man. At least he wasn't drunk, I guess. <laughs> yeah. According to Winthrop's account, Everell had been rowing along the muddy river with two others when a bright, fiery light, fiery light appeared in the sky in front of them. Winthrop wrote, When it stood still, it flamed up and was about three yards square. When it ran, it was contracted into the figure of a swine. A swine? A pig? I guess. A I guess maybe it resembled that. Kind of like looking at the clouds. A sweet little pig? A sweet little pig. The trio watched the light for two to three hours as it darted around the river area and the nearby village of Charlestown. And they felt later on that they had lost time during this duration because once they broke from the shock of seeing this crazy pig light, uh, they found themselves carried against the tide about a mile upstream with no memory whatsoever of paddling that distance. I really need some more detail on pig light and why they thought the light looked like a little pig, a sweet There's little pig. There's no more detail, just that it had the figure of a swine. Um, but I will say, missing time is super common with UFO phenomenon, as, as anyone who has listened to our Betty and Barney Hill episode uh, will know. There's a lot of that in this episode, too. And this isn't even the last sighting in a canoe. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Winthrop added to this report, diverse other credible persons saw the same light after about the same place. So, interesting. Carrie, if I can insert here, there's an old British joke about why is American beer like having sex in a canoe? Why? Well, it's fucking close to water. <laughs> <laughs> My Uncle David would appreciate that more probably. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> uh, this wouldn't be the only strange phenomena John Winthrop would record for posterity. In January 1644, about five years later, he wrote of another series of strange sightings that began with a group of men spotting strange lights rising up from the water, which assumed the form of a man, not a pig this time, sailed leisurely over the harbor and disappeared. The lights were seen again a few weeks later with many eyewitnesses reporting a light resembling the moon rising from the water, moving, and then being met by a twin light. Now that sounds, it's funny because that sounds sort of, if you think about it, like a modern um, flying saucer kind of account. Sure. A moon shaped like a disc coming up out of the water. Mm-hmm. So once it met this twin light, it merged and parted repeatedly with it. Kind of playfully, almost. This sounds sensual. It's very sexy. And eventually, it united into one bright disc of light and then vanished. 
So maybe this is the first report of a USO, or unidentified submerged object, in American history. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah, it's the first, the earliest that I've heard of. I, Carrie, here's a question I have. Uh, have you gotten any sense from these accounts whether these people thought the same things about these unidentified flying objects as people today do? Was anyone like... Uh, beings Aliens? from another world. No. Um, I get more of a sense of like something ghostly, maybe. Um, and there are a couple other sightings where I think it could be some sort of more paranormal rather than extraterrestrial phenomenon that these people were seeing. But again, they only really had what they could work with to describe these things. So, Oh, right. Yeah. They, they had no concept of other planets really your your average person um no certainly no concept of aliens right so massachusetts has many more stories to tell there were more strange sightings in the 1700s and then a particularly bizarre story was reported in the in the new york tribune and the new york sun in december 1909 Apparently, on the 22nd, a mysterious airship shining a bright beam of light appeared over the city of Worcester, and it hovered above it before moving away. Um, Worcester? Worcester, maybe? Is it, yeah, W-R-R-C-E-R-S-T-E-R, Massachusetts? Yes. Yeah, it's Worcester. Worcester. It's Worcester. <laughs> uh, so then it was seen again a couple hours later, kind of bobbing along in the sky, and the night after that, the same phenomena, or something like it, was spotted over Boston and the nearby suburb, suburb of Lynn. So again, l like we kind of talked about, they're talking about a mysterious airship here. So they have more of a context, more words for to describe what they're seeing. So maybe they're able to kind of hone in on it a little more than they could in the 1600s. Right. Or going the other way, does having... Aliens on the brain make you more likely to go like, oh, that light in the sky. You see a light in the sky and describe it as an alien. Yeah, I don't know. This is 1909, so. Oh, that's, yeah, you're right. They didn't have uh, the this context of Little Green Man of the stuff. worlds yes. and everything, so. A well, it wasn't before the book War of the Worlds. Right. I'm talking, yeah, the mass uh, the hysteria. The mass hysteria <laughs> caused by uh, uh, Orson Welles. Yes. A banner moment in Massachusetts ufology occurred on September 1st, 1969. Our listeners might recognize this case from episode 5 of season 1 of Netflix's reboot of Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> you know your audience, Caroline. <laughs> and uh, this episode was titled Berkshire's UFO. It was Labor Day weekend and a very hot late summer evening, kind of like tonight, in, <laughs> in picturesque Berkshire County, Massachusetts. We begin just past dusk with Jane Green, who was returning to Great Barrington from the town of Stockbridge with her friend Mary DeGrace. As they're driving down the highway, they come upon a bright, bright light, which they thought might be the scene of an accident. They couldn't make anything out. It was just so bright. And then? So she pulled over because she couldn't drive with the light in her eyes, and she figured there were police cars or something in front of them. She got out of the car, and Mary did as well, and they tried to see what was going on. On Unsolved Mysteries, Jane tells the camera, quote, 
Even if I get Alzheimer's, the one thing that'll stick in my mind is what happened. This huge object floated right there, and I couldn't see the end of it from the right or the left. It was tall, but the bottom part, I didn't see windows, and most of all, there was no noise. No motor, nothing. It was just there. Within seconds, the craft lifted up, it kind of zigzagged, and then it darted away over the nearby mountain. Within seconds? Yeah. And Jane found out years later her sons had seen the same thing, too, and they were at home. Uh, Jane hadn't mentioned it to them because she thought it would scare them because they were young. And they didn't mention it to her. And then years and years later, she was like, hey, I saw this crazy thing once. And they said, me too. And that was the first time either of them had realized that the other had seen it. Wow. Yeah. So next in Great Barrington, 10-year-old Tommy Warner is hanging out, coloring at his neighbor's home. These are the Shaws. After darkness fell, Tommy... Sorry, still Massachusetts? Yeah, this is all in the Berkshires area of Massachusetts. Um, It kind of goes along a line almost to like the Connecticut border. So Tommy walks over to the window of the home and here he said he heard a voice quite commandingly and clearly telling him, you need to go home now. I guess telepathically because no one else heard it. You're not my mom. (laughs) Yeah, right. Tommy was like, freaked out but he felt like he should listen so he told uh, daughter Debbie uh, Debbie Shaw that he needed to go home he wasn't sure why and then he bolted from the house like he started running because I guess he was really scared Mm -hmm. so as he's running across the yard to his home he realized that he couldn't move forward he was like running in place like something was holding him there Okay, now this is very interesting, high strangeness stuff. And this is witnessed by Debbie Shaw, who followed him out of the door, and she's interviewed too. And she sees him just running in place. Mm-hmm. Eventually, he's able to break this stasis and run forward, but as he turns to look to his left, a UFO just drops out of the sky in front of him. A beam came upon him that almost seemed to control his body, and then in a flash, he was gone. So Did the mom see that part, too? Well, this is... I don't know who else saw it, but I know Debbie saw it, who is an older woman now. Oh, this is the his his friend, the little girl His saw friend's it. sister, I think. So she saw the whole thing. Uh, she saw the beam of light, everything, and then she's just searching for Tommy, who had completely disappeared, like, out of thin air. At nearby Lake Mansfield, the family of 12-year-old Melanie Kirchdorfer had just parked in the lake lot to enjoy their Dairy Queen desserts. Almost as soon as they had, a brilliant aura came around the car, which freaked out the kids and made Kirchdorfer's father chase the bright light. He was like, oh, I got to check this out. Yeah, this is classic dad stuff. Buckle up, kids. We got to this. There's some important stuff we got to look into. Mm-hmm. And Melanie and her sister were like, no, it's no. like, Dad, this isn't our job. They were they were scared. Um, now, he starts to chase the light, and then the next thing Melanie remembers... Oh, you kids are going to be telling your, your, your kids about this. <laughs> so she's laid out on a ship, and this is where Tommy, older Tommy now, says he saw her laid out to his right, where he was. They were in some kind of room with other young people, and the other 
kids would disappear one by one. They would just pop and vanish. This continued until eventually Melanie woke up alone at the lake with no one, including her family, remaining nearby. And where were they? That I'm not sure. That they didn't really go into on the show, but they might have still been in the car or whatever, but they, she had to walk home. So Tommy saw Melanie in his dream. Yes. Did she see him? I don't think so. Um, but she said that later they kind of knew who each other was, but she was older than him by a couple years, so they didn't really have the same friend groups. And oh, of course, but they she's were a girl and he's a guy. In like the same school system. Probably, yeah. He didn't see her. He didn't like go he like, recognized her. He didn't go like there was a girl with brown hair. Oh, it was that girl. No, he recognized her. And then later when she really met him, like actually talked to him and stuff, she said she felt this weird um attachment to him and within minutes he almost felt like a brother to her and he had she had never really talked to him before it's definitely weird although they were both claiming to have gone through the same weird experience well that's probably it but so they're in kind of a little brotherhood already yeah so she's she has to walk home her family's gone the next tommy remembers he's being laid carefully on the ground kind of like a baby on the Shaw lawn by some kind of energy, and the beam is still shining on him. Then he's able to stand, and the craft disappears. So, I mean, what do you do after that? Do you go back to playing tag or whatever it was you were doing? Right? It's kind of like it. Like, once you spend the summer hunting Pennywise, how do you go back to being a kid again? Yeah, it was never normal for those kids, was it? Now, the last piece of the puzzle was in Sheffield, and this is kind of further south by a few miles. Nine-year-old Tom Reed was in the car with his brother, grandmother, and his single mother, Nancy, and they were taking a shortcut through the Sheffield-covered bridge to head back home after a busy day. They Mm -hmm. were doing, like, Labor Day stuff. As they exited the bridge, the family spotted a light rising from the banks of the Housatonic River which runs into Connecticut, as you may know. I do, yeah, sure, certainly. <laughs> Nancy described it uh, as a glowing ball of light hovering maybe two stories high. They'd all never seen anything like it. As it rose, it fired off rods of light, and Tom's brother Matthew spotted a roiling orange orb within the object, like pulsating, maybe powering it. Orange orbs, flaming orbs. That's this is super common um, alien imagery too. Mm-hmm. These are these are things you see again and again in UFO stories. Mm-hmm. So the atmosphere got very dense and physically high in pressure. It almost felt like being underwater. You mean like someone farted? <laughs> no, like they felt like uh, they were in a high pressure environment physically. No, I know what it is. the atmosphere gets dense. You look you look around. Who who was it? <laughs> you get dense. And everything is extremely quiet. So, listeners, you might hear the crickets outside. It's a normal summer night. They're in the mountains. Um, usually there's a ton of wildlife sounds and things like that. They couldn't hear anything. Nancy pulled off to the side of the road when she saw a disc-shaped object at least 100 yards long in the sky. It basically lights up the car like floodlights almost. And then the sounds of your typical summer night, you know, chirping, rustling, things like that, they kind of suddenly erupt back into reality all at once. 
Weird, with the ship still there. Yes, but that's the last the family remembers. Until they came to, almost a mile and a half away, in front of Silk's Variety Drugstore. Ah, and how much time had they uh, lost? Well, at first, everything seemed normal. (laughs) Well, here we are, a mile and a half away from where we were sitting. Until they realized that Tom's grandmother was in the driver's seat with Nancy in the passenger seat. Tom's grandmother never drove, and Nancy had been the one driving the family home. Ruh-roh. Tom stated that he can maybe account for like 15 minutes of the original drive home and what happened. But as you mentioned, Sean, three hours had passed that they could not account for at all. Mm-hmm. Shades of Betty and Barney Hill. Listeners, go back and listen to that wonderful episode. Mm-hmm. No one else had memories of what transpired in those three hours, how they had gotten to the drugstore, or why Nancy wasn't driving the car anymore. Tom thought that maybe something had happened to them and they were placed back in the car to kind of be like, oh, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. But they switched who had been driving. And that's why it was obvious. What did he think had happened to them? I think some kind of abduction scenario. He doesn't really talk about it in the show, but he has been on other shows. After the night. He thinks some kind of alien abduction? Yeah, he doesn't like calling it an abduction, but some sort of incident, you know, encounter, event. Not involving human beings, though. He doesn't think some people took them out of their car for reasons. Uh, yeah, I think he he thinks it is some sort of otherworldly situation. So after this night, things changed heavily for all those involved. Tom was outspoken about his experiences, and the entire Reed family was bullied so badly that they ended up moving away from Sheffield. The aftermath of the abduction is always worse than the abduction. Don't Mm -hmm. talk about the abduction. He was a kid, you know? He didn't know better. Tom told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, My mother wanted to move here because this was her Norman Rockwell, and this turned it into Salvador Dali. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Those that spoke. And he just meant because it was so hot there, their clocks were all melting, right? Exactly. Those that spoke out weren't really believed. Um, all of them, like Tommy Warner, are adamant that they really experienced the strangeness of what happened that night. Warner struggled with a lack of friends and dating prospects all throughout school due to this experience because people knew that he was one of the ones that had gone well, through it. Again, I just got to jump in, and I don't want to, I'm not blaming the victim here. Do you think he had no dating prospects because this had happened to him or because he would not stop talking? He said you would tell him he was abducted by aliens. You would tell your friends about it and then eventually you'd start losing friends so you'd stop telling people about it. Yeah, that implies that the entire time from those first two in between those first two points he was just continually telling people about it. I don't know, Sean. I mean, I stopped telling people I'm into um you know. You have no shame about anything. What are you talking about? Yeah, right. I guess there's nothing I, I'm not excited to tell people I'm into. <laughs> he stated, I live here. My family has lived here 182 years in the same house. Why would I want to come forward to tell a story? To embarrass myself so I go down Main Street or be ridiculed or my son or my wife 
More recently, on March 3rd, 2011, in Lowell, Massachusetts, Joe Souza was hanging out with friends near Floyd Street when the group spotted an odd, triangularly shaped object with glowing lights hovering over the neighborhood. Souza shot video of the large craft, which eventually received thousands of views on YouTube. What, what year did you say this was? 2011. And you can find it under UFO 2011 Lowell. And it also caught the attention of the sci-fi channel series Factor Faked Paranormal Files, who upon initial review couldn't immediately debunk the video. Oh, we like that show. For sure. I've seen this video. I think this is video that... Interesting. 2000... What did you say? 11. So the lights in the sky could be coordinated drones at that point, but... Seems early. It's tough, and they are moving in pretty good unison if you look at the video. Yeah, it's it's like a triangle. It's all moving together, so it seems like it would be one thing. So next, we'll visit the smallest state in the country, Rhode Island. Though it does have the least amount of reported UFO activity, which isn't surprising given that it's only 48 miles north to south and 37 miles east to west, it does have strange tales of its own. Project Blue Book, the official governmental Air Force research group assigned to investigate UFO reports during the time of 1952 to 69. We love, we love the Blue Book files. For sure. They recorded a story from August 12th, 1965 in Providence, Rhode Island. The witness reported seeing two objects flying one behind the other through a 120 power telescope. These objects had five bright yellow lights on them and were at the altitude of about 7,000 feet. The witness felt these objects were disc-shaped with the lights attached to the body and making no sound the entire time of the sighting. Four other people saw it as well. The witness stated that he was a student of astronomy for eight years, and I'm pretty sure I can tell a plane or a meteorite or a satellite when I see one, and I'm positive that these objects were none of them. He asked the local Air National Guard, airport, and Quonset Point Naval Air Station if they had anything going on that evening, and none of them had any flights in the air at the time of his sighting. It's interesting, though. He doesn't say, or this blurb doesn't tell us what it was in particular that he found weird about it. I'd love to know. It was, yeah, five bright yellow lights. Was it the Low colors? altitude. They were flying together. Okay. Another weird sighting was in early November 1958 in Greenville. Near the Slack Reservoir, a giant looming object was seen obscuring about 70% of the sky to the southwest. These are my favorite ones. And we, <laughs> we just did another one of these, too. With it. Anytime you got the like series of lights in the sky, those are usually pretty big, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like that giant triangle one that was in over Westchester. Yeah. At some point. Kind of reminds me of something from like Independence Day. Yes. <laughs> like almost filling the sky and then all of a sudden it blows up the White House or, right. or whatever. This object was glowing a silvery white light and shaped like two dinner plates top to top, aka saucer shaped. There was a glowing yellowish green band at its center. And as the odd saucer type object slowly rotated in the sky, five smaller round objects flew in from different directions and merged with the larger craft. And like we're going to say 
again, we're going to say, like we've said before, there was no sound at all during this entire sighting. What does it mean merged with? What does that look like? The, the lights just went into it, I guess. Like it was going inside, maybe? I don't know. Okay, it just, it's, people always say these things are so close down to the ground, but then also the details are vague-ish. Yeah, for sure. We go from the smallest state to one of the most northern states in the U.S. next, and that's Maine. Minnesota, oh. I said one of the. I thought it was just Maine or maybe Alaska, but Minnesota has like a weird point that's more north than anywhere else. Oh, I think Alaska's much further north than anything in the continental U.S. I think. Right. I could be wrong, but I, I, th I don't think anything in Minnesota is further north than Alaska. Maybe it's just the continental U.S. then. That makes sense to me. Maine is home of Stephen King and fabulous seafood, but the nicknamed Vacation Land... You hate lobster. Yeah. All right. I just wanted to get that on record. But I'm not... I'm not... You know, I want to let everyone else in on it. All right. Continue. You're very magnanimous, and I love that about you. Thank you. The nicknamed Vacation Land has plenty of unidentified flying weirdness afoot. One of the earliest reports is from July 22nd, 1808, when Camden schoolteacher Cynthia Everett recorded in her journal that she had seen a very strange appearance. At around 10 p.m. that evening, Everett spotted a light streaking in from the east that she at first thought was a meteor, but then realized it seemed to dart at first as quickly as light and appeared to be in the atmosphere. Just as quickly, it lowered toward the ground and kept on at an equal distance, sometimes ascending and sometimes descending. I'm loving these stories because they're so reminiscent of what um, UFO stories of the modern uh, era, always are. You know what I mean? It's always mm -hmm. the craft moving quickly back and forth across the sky. Always like a ball of light type of thing. Yep. Uh, frequently the lost time that we've already hit. Uh, I mean, it's just all the familiar elements that you see later in like Barty, Barney and Betty Hill. It's just so funny that they're already present in sightings at this time. In the far north town of Caribou on December 21st, 1955, a housewife spotted something in the sky that was truly out of this world. The sky was red-orange when she saw a large round object in the glow. Why, it's local flying circus pilot Pussy Galore. And is that <laughs> Abner? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Her husband's cheating on her with Pussy Galore from uh, Goldfinger. Oh, obviously. as you would. <laughs> So initially, I assumed that the sky was this color due to the sunset. Uh, I don't know what time the sighting occurred, but the witness felt like the object was the source of this red-orange light. Was the object, hear me out, a sun? Or perhaps <laughs> the sun? No. She said it was the size of a jet fighter and the approximate color of gold... But she stated that gold was the closest she could get because it was like no colors I've ever seen. Oh, maybe this was Pussy Galore. Her boss <laughs> loves gold, from what I understand. He loves gold. As it rotated silently in the sky, the shape of a cup overturned on an over oval platter. So it's like round and wider on the bottom and then like a bump in the middle, I guess. Yeah, we still have a saucer involved, but now it's got like a fun hat. Yeah. 
This witness saw hazy things moving in the space between the flat bottom of the craft and the half-moon top. So I guess there was a space in between them. Okay, maybe, I mean, maybe if we're looking on this with modern eyes, maybe that's like a row of windows that he didn't understand were windows, and you've got things he can see through the... She. Things she can see through the windows. Yeah, maybe. She told investigators, quote, I just can't explain it on paper, but there was life there for certain. Nothing human but alive. I don't believe we have any material such as this object was made of. Not that I've seen anyway. She was so far away from it. What does she mean? I don't know. She seemed very certain, though. That's the as much a lot of the the like common elements between all these stories are very interesting, but just as much the common like <laughs> sort of daffiness of most people who tell these stories. But they always seem very set in what they saw, like Yes, well that's my kind of my point. Like she her first thought best thought was aliens. <laughs> she never considered this was anything else. It didn't seem normal to her and it didn't seem human. So, I don't know. In August 1976, twin brothers Jack and Jim Weiner and their friend Chuck Rack, who were students at Massachusetts College of Art and Design, went on a two-week hiking expedition with U.S. Navy veteran and guide Charlie Foltz. A few days into the trip, as they set up camp in an area called Mud Brook on the Allagash Wilderness Waterway... Yeah, that's where you want to set up your camp, is Mud Brook. I don't know. You're going to wake up dry over a Mud Brook, no question. <laughs> they spotted an incredibly bright star that appeared much brighter than all the others surrounding it. And they followed it for three days, and they found the new boy king. <laughs> Once they saw it with binoculars, it was revealed that it wasn't a star at all, but an object a few miles away, about 200 feet above the trees. At this point, it suddenly blinked out, and the group dismissed it. Two nights later, however, they would have another experience. In a campsite at Eagle Lake... Wait, we don't need to hear about their personal lives, Carrie. Stop. Uh, in a campsite at Eagle, fuck off, man! In a campsite at Eagle, that's staying in <laughs> Eagle Lake. God damn it! Chuck first spotted a very bright globe of light, as big as a house, and hovering two to three hundred feet above the cove. The light was changing color from white to red to green in a liquid kind of melding motion. Christmassy aliens. Okay, mm -hmm. at least they celebrate Christmas. The men all saw it, and they were all dumbfounded by the sight. Charlie, perplexed, picked up his flashlight and signaled SOS to it in Morse code. What kind of a name is Charlie Perplexed? Oh, I see. Sorry, continue. <sighs> in apparent response to his flashing SOS, the light flew toward them at a terrifying speed, stopping 50 feet above the men in their canoe and shooting at a cone-shaped beam of light that scanned the water like a searchlight. Though frightened and trying to paddle away, the canoe was captured in the beam and enveloped in the glow. Is his premise that the aliens thought, oh no, an SOS signal, let's go save them? I assume it's that um, it saw them because he flashed the flashlight. All right. They probably don't understand Morse code. <laughs> no, I don't think so. 
So they're in the light, and then the next thing they know, the canoe is back to shore. The light is now a few dozen feet away, hovering above them, and then it shoots into the sky and disappeared. The men felt exhausted and drained, and their roaring bonfire from just minutes before was now smoking embers. It had basically burned out. Lost time again. Mm-hmm. They were disturbed by the experience, but didn't talk much more about it until back at home when Jack started having nightmares about being examined by alien figures while Jim, Chuck, and Charlie sat nearby on a bench in a trance. Just like Barney Hill. No, they touched my penis. I know it. (laughs) He didn't say that. He sort of basically did. (laughs) Under hypnosis, all of the men described being examined somewhere with numerous machines, silver examination tables, endless hallways, and chambers. The alien creatures examining them were like bugs. They just That's called them like bugs. With big bug eyes, beaky mouths, and willowy arms with thumbless hands. Okay, so obviously they weren't using any kind of fine tools to examine them with. I guess. After being poked and prodded on their eyes, fingers, legs, toes, and genitals. What do you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. They were eventually transported back to the canoe, which was pushed by unseen forces back to shore. This experience would come to be known as the Allagash Abduction, chronicled in Raymond Fowler's book, The Allagash Abduction, Undeniable Evidence of Alien Intervention, published in 1993. Catchy title. He knew what he was doing. And that's unrelated to Allagash Brewing Company? I'm sure it's the same area. Delicious Belgian white beers. (laughs) And we'll take a trip to the Roswell of the East. Uh oh. After the break. Ooh. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Tara. Hi, Nick. I've got a question for you. A hypothetical question. Here for it. If you and I were to make a podcast... Why would we make a podcast? Why does anyone make a podcast? Massive egos. Anyway. If you and I were to make a podcast... Right, so if we were to make a podcast where we ask each other hypothetical questions... (laughs) Wait, so not only is this a podcast about listening to an old married couple argue, it's explicitly about nonsense? That's right. Okay, I'm with you so far. So what would we call this hypothetical podcast? Well, I think we'd call it Unloaded Questions, a podcast about lighthearted musing and loving debate. And excellent accent work. With your co-hosts, Nick and Tara. Now, babe, why would anyone listen to a podcast like this? Well, maybe after a year locked inside their own houses, people want a break from heavy news or serial killers and just want to wonder how many Sasquatch eye it would take to successfully capture Nessie. I think it's Sasquatches. It's a Latin root. I'm pretty sure it's Sasquatch eye. Unloaded Questions, with your hosts, Nick and Tara, dropping Wednesday at a podcatcher near you. Hey, Tara, what's a group of Sasquatch Eye called? A Foot Clan. Nick, people are going to have to hear this out more than once. Foot Clan. Ugh. 
Welcome back. When last we left you, Caroline had just made the large promise of taking us on a trip to the Roswell of the Northeast United States. Caroline, where might that be? Well, listeners of the show will remember New Hampshire as the site of the Betty and Barney Hill incident slash abduction. Certainly do. And that's from our episode on the case number 24. Yep, mentioned several times in this app <laughs> yeah, already. already. But that's not the only incredibly famous UFO story from the Granite State. Tell us more, Carrie, and make these facts, if you will, as hard as granite. <laughs> I'll do my best. Uh, yeah, the Roswell of the East, New Hampshire, boasts an annual UFO festival in Exeter, where the eponymous Exeter incident occurred on September 3rd, 1965. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do is I'm going to Exeter this fucking planet get on this alien ship over here. <laughs> do you think anyone in New Hampshire sounds like that? Isn't that the classic New Hampshire accent? No? <laughs> no. At around 2 a.m. early that morning, 18-year-old Norman Muscarello was hitchhiking home from his girlfriend's house 10 miles away in Amesbury, Massachusetts, along New Hampshire Route 150. Since there were few cars out at this time of night, he was hoofing it at this point, and as he reached Kensington, a few miles outside of Exeter, he noticed five bright red flashing lights in a distant field. Was he hitchhiking? Because, I mean, maybe this is, maybe you go like, oh, finally some lights, this, this is my ride, and then you, you realize well, that's not to be. <laughs> he initially thought that they were the lights of a police car or two. Uh, or maybe a fire engine. So he approached the field and he saw lights illuminating the surrounding woods and two nearby houses. And this is all like bright red light. Now, as is a trend with these stories, as we've mentioned, they made absolutely no sound, no motor or anything like that. The object began to move slightly towards him and Muscarell saw it must be around 80 to 90 feet in diameter. Panicking, he dove into a ditch on the side of the road, and when the lights changed direction and hovered over one of the houses, that of the dining family, Muscarello ran to the house and pounded on the door yelling for help, but no one was home, so no one answered. At this point, the large lighted object moved away into the woods. Relieved at seeing the headlights of an approaching car, Muscarello desperately ran into the road and flagged it down and he requested to be driven to the Exeter police station. Here he recounted the experience to Officer Reginald Toland, who radioed another officer, Eugene Bertrand Jr. Bertrand had earlier that evening found a distressed woman sitting in her car on New Hampshire Route 108 and approached help. The woman told Bertrand that she had seen a large object with flashing red lights, which followed her car all the way from Epping, 12 miles away, hovering over it before it flew away. Oh, no thanks. Yeah, absolutely not. Bertrand had basically considered her a kook, but he stayed with her for about 15 minutes to calm her down before she got back on the road. Was he still sitting with her when he got this <laughs> call? Like, Jean here? No, this was something that had happened earlier, so... I assume the officer, Toland, who was taking Muscarella's story, remembered that Bertrand had reported this. He was like, hey, get a load of this. 
So because of the two incidents, Bertrand decided to go back to the field with Muscarello and investigate. Don't worry, ma'am. Jade's on the case. (laughs) After leaving the patrol car to walk forward uh, to the woods, some horses in a nearby corral began kicking the fence and sides of a barn while making frightened noises. Kicking the sides of a barn? (laughs) Yeah, like... Get out of there, you! Kicking the fence, kicking the barn, like freaking out. And dogs in the area also started barking and howling. At the barn? Just in general. <laughs> I, I didn't interview <laughs> the dog. <laughs> Got a problem with that barn. <laughs> it was then that the pair saw an object slowly rise from the trees. Seeing it for the first time, Bertrand described it as this huge, dark object as big as a barn over there with red flashing lights on it. They are always big. They're never like a little scout ship. (laughs) Or the scout ships are around the big ship, usually. You know, the little ones merging into it. But you're going minimum barn size. I mean, if not, why not? Why even go into space? Sure. It moved toward them, swaying weirdly back and forth, silent as ever. Bertrand first pointed his service revolver at the object, but deciding shooting it might be a bad idea. Oh, the ladies, get behind (laughs) old Jean! He reholstered and grabbed Muscarello to run back to the car. Inside the car, they radioed policeman David Hunt and watched the craft, which was still hovering about 100 feet away and 100 feet in altitude. Nearby animals continued to make noise and act agitated as the pulsating red lights on the object flashed rapidly from right to left and then left to right over and over again. Like a like a fancy Christmas display. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it was still there in the sky when Officer Hunt arrived on the scene and he witnessed the event as well. Eventually, it rose over the trees and disappeared. Hunt soon heard the engines of a B-47 bomber as it flew overhead, and later stated that you could tell the difference and there was no comparison between the UFO and the bomber. How was he able to identify a B-47 bomber? He might have just known. They returned back to the Exeter police station and filed three separate reports. Bertrand then drove Muscarello home. So this incident gained national exposure, and it prompted journalist John G. Fuller to head to Exeter and investigate the whole thing. Upon interviewing locals, Fuller found that many others had also witnessed strange lights and unusual objects, including Ron Smith, a high school senior, who told Fuller that a few weeks previously, he, his aunt, and his mother had all seen an object with a red light on top and a bottom that was white and glowed. The object appeared to be spinning. It passed over the car once, and then it passed over and got in front, stopped in midair, and then went back over the car again. Definitely different from the elaborate description of spinning red lights going first Mm -hmm. one way and then the other. Yeah, might be. Toland, the original police officer Muscarello had told his story to, also related to Fuller that several calls had come into the station regarding local UFO sightings recently. A Mrs. Ralph Lindsay had reported seeing a UFO early, just before dawn. When she called, she said it was right out of her window as she was calling. It was like a big orange ball as big as the harvest moon, but it wasn't the moon either. And all the time she was talking to me, her kids were at the window watching it. Why would people go through all this trouble, people all over the area, if they weren't seeing something real? 
Project Blue Book, investigating the case themselves, were unable to reach a probable cause of this sighting. The report states, quote, The three observers seemed to be stable, reliable persons, especially the two patrolmen. I viewed the area of the sighting and found nothing in the area that could be the probable cause. Pease AFB had five B-47 aircraft flying in the area, but I do not believe that they had any connection with this sighting. See, people have been going wild, and of course we've talked on this podcast about the recent disclosure uh, from the Department of Defense in the Air Force mm -hmm. about all of the uh, UFOs and many that they couldn't you know, find uh, definitive causes for, had to classify as unidentified. So a lot of people going like, oh my god, they're acknowledging that things are unidentified. Project Blue Book has a ton of incidents, like you just described, where they go like, yep, we don't know what this was. Yep. So people much. saw it. Seems like they really did see something. We don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, it's This is nothing brand new, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Though conflicting explanations came afterward from the Air Force, Pentagon, and others involved in Project Blue Book, there was never a definitive answer. The Exeter incident remained a major part of the town's history, and in 2010, the local Kiwanis Club started the Exeter UFO Festival as a fundraiser to help benefit children's charities in the area. And still goes on. I assume it was on hiatus for COVID, but um, definitely on the bucket list for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, couple year anniversary? Isn't five years the Exeter anniversary? Yes, I believe that is the Flying Saucer anniversary. For his part, original witness Norman Muscarello passed away in 2003 at the age of 55. Oh. His obituary, found at Seacoast Online under the regrettable headline, Exeter's UFO Kid Dead at 55. Oops. <laughs> paints a melancholy picture. Gosh, don't call a 55-year-old man a kid. Yeah. It paints a melancholy picture of the rest of his life. After all, through supporting his family and taking three different tours in Vietnam, Muscarello was always known as the UFO Kid. However, the end of the article reiterates a point from his brother, Thomas. Norman was an exceptional brother, son, and veteran who always took care of me. So the people who mattered remembered him for more than just being the UFO Kid. Exactly. But I didn't want to get that in there. Some of the more recent New Hampshire sightings came in 2014, when there was a rash of reports about a boomerang-shaped object seen in the clear night sky. The Bow family was among the many who witnessed it, saying it was larger, brighter, and closer than any star, made no sound, and had two sets of lights on the bottom, three larger ones and two smaller amber ones. Dad Jimbo stated... <laughs> Jimbo... Hey, it's me, Jimbo. Let me tell you this. <laughs> Let me tell you about this friggin' craft. He got three colors of lights and, and this. <laughs> he said, I'd never seen a craft that could do that, being that big, float by without falling out of the sky and not making a sound. Without falling out of the friggin' sky? Oh! <laughs> what is he, Andrew Dice Clay? Hey, it's Jimbo. <laughs> the wings are about the size of two tour buses. That's how big it was. Another recent How big was it? Another recent report is from July 2017 when a teardrop-shaped bright red-orange light was witnessed moving extremely quickly in the direction of the Seabrook nuclear power plant. Very That's not a good thing for it to be moving towards. 
a lot of these things are seen near power plants and especially nuclear power plants, which is people think that they might be charging up or something like that. Yep. I, I suppose they could also be places where you're more likely to have secret patrols, though. Maybe. Next, Vermont, hippie capital and home of Bernie Sanders, offers some tantalizing and unexplained UFO stories. Champy? Is Champy involved somehow? I know Champy's not an alien that we know of. We're getting there, Sean. One of these bizarre tales is of the Buff Ledge UFO encounter. On August 7th, 1968, Michael and Janet, which are pseudonyms, were taking a break during a day of working at a private summer girls' camp on Lake Champlain, north of Burlington. Uh-oh, here comes our old friend, Caroline. Not necessarily, but it is the same lake that supposedly is the home of Champy, New England's very own lake monster. Uh, we dis- We discussed this sweet, sweet beast on our lesser-known American cryptids episode number 15. A noble creature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perhaps it's no surprise that the area also seems to attract strangeness in the sky as well as its waters. Michael and Janet were lounging on the dock while many of the other counselors and campers were away on overnight trips in the area. Oh, I thought you you were going to say, well, many of the other counselors and campers were drowning in the lake, like Jason. (laughs) No. They were fooling around on the dock. No, they were enjoying some time off before they all got back and the craziness began again. Michael first started a spotted a bright star-like object in the sky that he initially figured was Venus. He followed it to the newborn king of Israel. <laughs> he made sure uh, Janet saw the object as well, and they both saw it was making strange movements. It was kind of becoming like a fantastical, absurd light show. The object swooped down in an arc, then blossomed into a glowing white cigar shape. After coming to a complete stop, three small white lights came out of it. Then the main object vanished while the smaller lights remained. I think you were just going to say three small whites like Tom Cruise. <laughs> Danny DeVito. <laughs> Tom Cruise, Danny DeVito, and you come walking out. Hey! Of <laughs> Tom Cruise, Danny DeVito, and me walk into a bar. It must be a very short bar. <laughs> My bar is always low, baby. <laughs> Clearly, you married me. Hey! The lights swooped and dove in the sky, coming closer and showing themselves to be some sort of domed disks. They formed a kind of triangle, then two flew in opposite directions, while the third advanced across the lake toward the pair. A band of light with hues across the color spectrum, glowing out of it, rotated on the disk's edge, pulsating in harmony with strange sounds that were being emitted in different pitches and tones. This is trippy as all hell. It's very trippy. The disc shot straight up out of sight, then dove sharply into the lake, creating wind and waves. Soon after it emerged, soon after it reemerged, it moved toward the dock where Michael and Janet sat and stopped about 60 feet away from the teens, still hovering about 15 feet in the air. Michael stated later that it seemed like the size of a small house, 40 to 50 feet wide, shaped like two curved saucers placed face to face, sort of like those dinner plates the housewife saw. Right, this is always, yeah, it's always that shape. Mm -hmm. Or it's a triangle made of lights. (laughs) Yeah. 
And then it gets weirder. Yes. <laughs> Michael saw a transparent dome with two entities inside, which were large-headed and Did oval-eyed. you say a transparent... I think you said a transparent dome. I just need to make sure you didn't say a transparent gnome. No, dome. Okay. And inside of the dome, there were two beings, large-headed and oval-eyed, with two nasal openings and small mouths. These sound like gnomes. So you're saying inside <laughs> the dome, there were a couple of gnomes. A couple of dome gnomes. They might have been wearing gray or silver uniforms. One of the beings began to mimic Janet, who appeared to be in a trance-like state, while the other communicated with Michael telepathically. What do you mean mimic her? Like, she's she's passed out, and he's like, look at this labo. Like, she, she's passed out, like, Hey, you hang out with this chick? What a lightweight. God, I hate this guy. He's a he's a dome gnome. What are you gonna do? <laughs> he doesn't have the the he hasn't been raised with the polite manners of a human. Clearly, the being told Michael telepathically that they were from a distant planet and had made earlier visits to Earth, including around the time of the first nuclear explosions in 1945. <laughs> no, not that one. The other one. Hey, guess what? Uh, guess what our planet's called? <laughs> no, we're not doing Beavis and Butthead, the dome gnome. No, guess what it's called? Guess what it's called? <laughs> What? It's called your butt. <laughs> I hate them, and I Don't want know. them to Don't stop. Know. He also said Michael was in no danger. As the craft drew slowly closer, it shone a bright beam of light on the pair. Michael covered Janet protectively as he felt like he was passing out, and eventually he abruptly came to. He was still on the dock, but it was completely dark outside. And the object was still kind of hovering above them. At this point, some of the campers had returned for the evening, and two of them, Susan and Barbara, also pseudonyms, ran down to the dock screaming because they saw this thing. Hey, cool it, man. (laughs) Reacting to the new people on the scene, the craft rose and directed its beam of light across the camp, flashing in a rapid sequence. The light then went out, the object angled upward, and it disappeared from sight in a matter of seconds. Michael brought Janet back to her cabin, and after that, they didn't speak of the incident. Michael supposed that she had been traumatized. Jeez, it's the cops! And they zip off into space. We need to euthanize these two. The dome gnomes? (laughs) So they didn't talk about what had happened until ten years later. UFO investigator Walter Webb interviewed the pair separately for his book, Encounter at Buff Ledge, A UFO Case History. During these interviews and under hypnosis, Michael and Janet relayed new details about the incident, basically sketching out an abduction scenario. Yeah, this, before we even get, I can't wait to get into it, but I will say, you know we've got problems with the Betty and Barney story, and that was hypnotically regressed like one year after the incident? Mm-hmm. This is ten years later? Yeah. And they they suddenly, under hypnosis, remembered an alien they, abduction. They remembered the abduction part, yeah. They had always remembered seeing the object and all that stuff. Great. I have concerns, <laughs> but go. Let's let's get into it. Michael remembered seeing screens with the Earth, Moon, stars, and a huge cigar-shaped ship on them. There were different decks, and on one of these, Janet was lying on a rectangular table with two of the creatures examining her. 
Michael was led to a nearby table to be examined himself, but he lost consciousness for this part of the exam. A helmet-like object was eventually placed on his head, with which he telepathically saw strange images of a strange landscape with a purple sky, trees, grass, fountains, and suddenly he was falling through a space of, like, tons of TV-like screens, basically like the facets of a fly's eye, and then awoke on the dock with Janet beside him. Ah! 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 Can I do that again? <laughs> it's uh, it's so much exactly Betty and Barney's story and also Georgia Damsky's story of being on the alien uh, spaceship. Mm-hmm. Just again, the, uh, the the shades of the same stories coming through over and over again. Yeah, it's very like interesting. Something in our uh, collective unconscious. Or it really happened. Janet, who hadn't remembered much of the initial incident aside from the moving lights and the approach of the big light, recalled much more during hypnotic regression. Most of her account was the same as Michael's, including the tests being conducted on her and the same kinds of screens that Michael had reported seeing. Webb also talked to 11 former camp counselors and seven former campers, including Susan and Barbara, who all independently had vague memories of an unidentified object moving swiftly away from the waterfront. They all described it as quiet, dark, and circular, with lights along its curved edge. Another independent witness, who had been directing a nearby production of Bye Bye Birdie, also witnessed a strange lighted object in the sky that evening. I mean, the shape, size, and where the lights are actually is so similar to Betty and Barney's uh, spaceship, which is interesting. We end with our home state, Connecticut. Yeah, 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 yeah. 203, 203, reppin' for you and me, <laughs> baby. Stupid. <laughs> There's evidence of a human presence in the area of Connecticut as far back as 10,000 years ago. But has the UFO presence gone back just as far? Well, we don't have any documents from that far back, but we can go back a few centuries in history. Let's check out the writings of podcast favorite douchebag, Reverend Cotton Mather. Oh, your favorite guy. We, we talked about him just a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So we've mentioned him a few times before. But we'll in, mention him a few times again. Yeah, in case you missed it. Cotton Mather was a Puritan New England minister and writer that was heavily involved in the Salem Witch Trials, where, as contemporary critic Robert Califf wrote, he was the most active and forward of any minister in the country in those matters. Loved murdering a, a woman. Yeah, in other words, he sucked. In his Magnalia Christi Americana, Mather recorded an account given to him in 1648 by a pastor, James Pierpont, from New Haven, Connecticut. Pierpont described seeing an ethereal ship that appeared in the sky above the city harbor following a huge thunderstorm. Now, you mean, you when you say ship, you don't mean a craft or a flying no, saucer. No, closer to a boat. This ghostly ship floated there for a whole half an hour, appearing to have wind-filled sails and holding some sort of course north. Many others saw this great work of God, as Pierpont called it, including children crying out, There's a brave ship! 
I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, it's it's in the air, you see, not it on the water. Be brave. So high above the water. <laughs> oh, so brave that ship. Eventually, the image or craft or whatever it was vanished into a cloud, leaving empty air. There was a brave ship. <laughs> the brave ship's gone. So this is definitely a UFO because it's unidentified, flying, perhaps an object. It doesn't mean that it's an alien flying saucer. Maybe the explanation here, as we've hinted before, was more paranormal. Yeah, I mean, th this one, I have a hard time jiving it with any, like, you know, UFO story that I've heard before, right? It sounds more like a a ghost ship. Well, apparently, a year earlier in January 1647, a ship sailed off and never returned back to New Haven. The ghost ship of 1648, however, very much resembled the original that had been assumed lost at sea. And this sighting comforted the people of New Haven, who felt, quote, God had condescended. Condescended is weird, but... Yeah, it's a, it's a poor choice of words. <laughs> He's like, yeah, whatever, bitches. <laughs> Look, it's a ship. God is really patronizing. He is <laughs> our patron. Yeah, all right. You guys know, I know you guys will be friggin' blown away by this. Take a look. God had condescended for the quieting of their afflicted spirits. This is extraordinary account of his sovereign disposal of those for whom so many fervent prayers made continually. A.K.A. it helped the loved ones of those lost to be comforted that they were in God's hands now. It's basically a sign from God, they thought. Sure. I mean, as far as interpreting a ghost ship in the sky that's as good a guess as any one i would have so yeah why not next we explore the project blue book entries for connecticut an interesting one with multiple witnesses was logged for march 1954 one witness had been walking in his neighborhood in warrigan oh boy spell that w-a-u-r-e-g-a-n warrigan W-A-U-R-G-A-N? R-E-G-A-N. Warrigan. War- where- Warrigan. Wa- Warrigan. Warrigan? <laughs> so this yeah, it's, it's like if, if, <laughs> if Wario took over the state of Oregon and it was Warrigan! <laughs> this is in the northwest corner of Connecticut. That's why we don't know about it. Uh, it's around dusk, and he saw a huge ball of light a few hundred feet above him, making no sound and leaving no trail, but moving extremely fast toward the night, toward the North Star. Wah! Making no sound, Sean. It was purple and yellow. It had a bad mustache. <laughs> Because of the silent nature of the object and how quickly it was moving, the witness was certain it was not an airplane. The incident continued eight miles away, where an older man described being enshrouded in a bright white light, causing him to look upward and see a flaming object around 2,200 feet in the air, heading quickly north. There were sightings of the same ball of light being seen over Danielson, Plainfield, Moosup, Jewett City, Norwich, and New London, and both the local Norwich Bulletin newspaper and the police were besieged with concerned phone calls. Witnesses included a group of men that were pilots, former pilots, and engineers who saw the object through powerful glasses. I assume these are high-powered binoculars. You mean binoculars? Yeah. 
and they concluded that it had its own source of energy because of the manner of its movements, but they didn't recognize what kind of plane or something like that it could be. These are all engineers and pilots. No plumbers. No. I'm still stuck on the Wario thing. <laughs> Later, in the 1980s, there were mass UFO sightings in the nearby Hudson Valley area of New York. Thousands of people over the span of around five years reported seeing a boomerang or V-shaped flying object with multicolored lights. And this was like football field sized, right? Mm -hmm. This is the one I was referencing before. Yeah. So apparently, the Hudson Valley UFO took little trips to the surrounding areas as well. Well, how, how nice. Yeah, it's very cute. Yeah, well, it's like a regional band. You know, you gotta <laughs> you tap out the audience in one spot. You get, you go out into the smaller markets, and you sell a couple tickets. Hudson Valley UFO is a pretty good band name. It's not bad. Hudson <laughs> Valley Triangle might be even better. Mm. Between 1982 and 1987, the craft was seen as far east as New Haven and as far north as Brookfield, Connecticut, which is in the middle of the state. A variety of witnesses described it as bigger than a 747, silent, huge, and made of a dark gray material with a series of red and white lights. This, too, was said to be of a boomerang shape. And same description when it was seen in Connecticut, right? Mm-hmm. That's, those are the ones in Connecticut, but it's the same as the Hudson Valley ones. May 26, 1987, was a banner day for Connecticut viewings of the Hudson Valley UFO, between 9.30 and 10.15 p.m. across New Milford, Southbury, and Newtown, police received more than 200 calls about seeing a UFO. Drivers pulled over to watch as it passed over I-84, and airline pilot Randy Edding described spotting an unusual cluster of orange and red lights coming from the west. Grabbing his binoculars, he saw a semicircular pattern of bright lights connected to an object larger than a football field. Mm-hmm. It's it's just, it's bigger than they make planes, you know, to state Certainly. the obvious. Yeah. In our own town of Bridgeport in 1990, two brothers reported losing several hours of time after spotting and following a stingray-shaped object in the sky. Why'd you follow it? A lot of these people seem drawn to following it, almost. Beginning near sunrise, they first heard a strange sound and then saw a dark object in the air about the size of two football fields put together. And it was hovering over a local funeral home and then shot off in the blink of an eye. As they tried to follow, they ended up by Long Island Sound, which isn't hard to do because Bridgeport's right on the sound. Right. But they returned... They're lucky they didn't accidentally <laughs> drive onto the ferry. Yeah. They returned home hours later, unsure of how the time had passed. Because again, if you're just going to the sound and back, that's like 20 minutes. Yeah, but if you've ever driven across Bridgeport at the wrong time of day, uh, this you know. This is at sunrise. Ain't no one on the road. All right, I'm just saying, I've lost a lot of time driving across Bridgeport before. <laughs> okay. Now, for myself, I've seen a few weird things in the sky around here. Wah! <laughs> Not Wario. <laughs> Once, while being driven to play rehearsal around sunset, we spotted a round metallic object just hovering in the sky above my high school. High up, but in that general direction. It didn't move, but it stayed there still for at least the ten minutes we spent watching until we went inside. It was solid, the sun was 
going down, um, and it was reflecting off of this object. Maybe it was a weather balloon. I've never seen one before. I don't know if they're even still used, but maybe. How many football fields was it? I ha- I I'm bad at judging people's height that are standing <laughs> next to me. Everything is big to me because I'm five two. So I really couldn't tell you. You're I'm like, it, it, it was between five three and four miles across. I mean, it was big for being in the sky, and it was high up. Um, but it was metal looking, at least reflective, and it was solid and it was round. Huh. Um. Once I saw a low-flying, fast, bright object after coming out of hockey practice. This was with my mom. Don't know if she remembers it, but I remember at the time we were like, what is that? It was very low. And another time I spotted a strange object zipping through the sky with green and purple lights on the side one fall evening. I can't explain what these were, but they didn't seem like any other planes, helicopters, or familiar flying craft that I had ever seen. Just because of the colors of lights? Yeah, and the movement, and the speed, things like that. Um, Sometimes you see things zigzagging around. It's weird. Yeah, if something was zigzagging across the sky or something, that's interesting to me. But if it's moving in a straight line, I'm probably going to assume it's a plane. I don't care what color the lights are. Right. No, these were moving weirdly. Or not at all, in the case of the uh, high school one. Have you seen anything weird in the sky? Other than, and we've talked about this on the pod before, you and I saw a meteor that exploded into a fireball. It was just a fireball. I don't think those are meteors. You don't think those are meteors? It was so low. It was right over the sound. Yeah, by the time it, like, blew up. Yeah, I, I I assume that that uh, that's a big no. I think meteor. we looked into it, and it's not. It's just like a weird natural phenomenon. So it was nothing exploding. I don't know. It wasn't a thing from space. But it's like it's a weird natural phenomenon where fireballs just happen, and we both saw it on the sound, right where we are now, um, on the beach, last year, and we were. Oh, I was Googling whether out. like a recent, whether a flight had exploded just now well, overhead or something. Because TWA it was, it was 800, which we're going to cover fairly soon, probably on the show, that blew up off of Long Island. So that was my first thought, too. And of course, I'm terrified of flying. So uh, I was hoping that wasn't the case, certainly. For which, everyone. according to the records that night, uh, it wasn't. So Nope. But... Yeah, that was that was one of the craziest things I've ever seen, period. And it has a quote-unquote logical explanation. Um, that was one of those, like, long pause and then, did you just see that? Yeah, it was one of those. It was pretty wild. Uh, but you've never seen anything that was, like, strangely moving in the sky or anything like that? No, I've spent time with and around drones. I mean, I've seen drones. No, stuff you couldn't explain. No. Well, maybe someday. There's some weird stuff in the sky out here sometimes um, that I can't really explain, so. Well, I'll have to keep my eyes out, and you'll have to point them out to me. (laughs) Like I did when I said, look at that fireball. (laughs) Yeah, and if we see any football field-sized objects, we'll be sure to let our listeners know. For sure. And you guys do the same. It's only fair. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Sean? Yeah. Are you thinking about Wario again? Wow! Hey. 
Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. A woman is found in a well 11 days after she's supposed to elope, and it ignites the first murder trial in U.S. history. One of the oldest buildings in New York is the home to an old ghost and plenty of terrifying stories. The daughter of a former vice president and one of the most famous murderers in U.S. history goes missing while sailing- Adam, what are you doing? Well, Christina, I'm doing the trailer for our podcast. No, no, no. We agreed it was going to be fun and lively, like the show, with plenty of character voices. Oh, no, no, no. No voices. Oh, there would be plenty of voices. Fine. Have it your way. Join us each week on the New York Mystery Machine, where we explore the biggest unsolved murders, hauntings, disappearances, and more. Hosted by me, Adam Mace. And me, Christina Marinelli. Available every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at New York Mystery Machine and Twitter at New York Mysteries. The New York Mystery Machine. Get, Get on, on board! Let's head to Poe's Cryptid Corner. Oh, look at that sweet little guy. He's so excited. <laughs> this summer has brought us at least two more sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, a.k.a. Nessie, in Scotland. Oh, look at that sweet little guy. <laughs> He's so sweet. She. Nessie's a girl. You've seen her genitals? That doesn't make you a girl. Well, I think We're not going to do gender studies right now. You're... You're the one gendering Nessie. Sorry, go Nessie ahead. Nessie is known as a, as a girl. Okay, anyway. Where have they been seen? <laughs> the first sighting reportedly occurred on July 26th when the Norman family visiting Loch Ness from Surrey, England, spotted something strange around 11.30 a.m. as they headed back from a pleasure cruise. Sebastian Norman saw what he described as a black dot in the distance about 65 to 100 feet ahead of the boat. The family explained that as we got closer to it, it was a scaly black shape the size of a dinner plate that was higher at one end and was like a tiny slope. Okay, I mean, she's been described more flatteringly than that. She's a, <laughs> she's a tiny slope now? Well, you know, she's a skinny queen. Uh, the most recent sighting followed just a couple weeks later on August 11th by Matt Reddick, who was actually watching a Loch Ness live stream from his home in Dallas, Texas. And he saw it online? Yes. Reddick was surprised to see something suddenly emerge from the water, appearing to surface and dive, leaving wakes as it swims left. 
The sighting was documented on the stream, and you can see the replay on YouTube, but it's hard to make out exactly what it could be. I.e. just any kind of an animal, basically? I don't know. It seems big, but again, I have no sense of scale. That's never been one of my strengths. Right. Well, but but, I mean, it's hard to get a sense of scale in a video like that anyway. You don't know how much of the lake you're seeing. Yeah. There are other possible sightings from July 19th and July 31st, so it seems that Nessie has been quite busy this summer. Making a resurgence, he or she. And Nessie, get at us about what your proper pronouns are. (laughs) She's so sweet. They're so sweet, until we know better. They're so sweet. Nessie, get at us about those pronouns. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. We sure will. And special thanks, by the way, we're already grateful to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, and Ryan Regan. Um, The rest of y'all, we appreciate you just listening. And if you want to hear uh, more of us, spend a little more time with us, we would welcome you on Patreon. But uh, this show right here will always remain free. Absolutely. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. If you want to find Kyle, you can at his YouTube channel. That is called Music is a Verb. He speaks about pop music with um, grace, class, and intelligence, which is something no one else seems to be uh, doing. And it's great. This has been a production of Longboy Media. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 